Hello and welcome to another episode of Sports and Songs Podcast. This is the musical segment this week. We've got two parts. Andy's going to do a segment on Live Aid. I'm going to do a segment on Disco Demolition Night. Now, for those who aren't familiar, this last week was the anniversary of Disco Demolition Night at Comiskey Park, home of the White Sox. I'll go through a, a summary of that uh, for those who do not remember it. Demo Demolition, Disco Demolition Night was a Major League Baseball promotion that took pl- place Thursday, July 12th, 1979 in Chicago at Comiskey Park. This event ended in a riot. At the climax of the event, a crate filled with disco records was blown up on the field between games of a twi-night doubleheader between the White Sox and the Detroit Tigers. Many of those in attendance had come to see the explosion rather than the games and rush onto the field after the detonations. The playing field was so damaged by the explosion and by the fans that the White Sox were required to forfeit the second game to the Tigers. Now, let's get into it. In 1978, a radio station in New York switched to disco and became the most popular station in the country. This led other stations to try to emulate the success, but in Chicago, a young 24-year-old DJ by the name of Steve Dahl was working as a disc jockey for ABC-owned radio station WDAI. When he was fired on Christmas Eve in 1978 as part of the station's switch from rock to disco, he was then hired by a rival rock station, WLUP, sensing the upcoming anti-disco backlash and also playing off the publicity surrounding his firing Dahl wanted to get back, uh, as Mr. Dahl was anti-disco. Uh, now, this wasn't the only thing that took place in 1979 that related to anti-disco. There was a number of anti-disco incidents that took place elsewhere the first half of 1979, showing that the disco demolition was not an isolated incident Earlier that year in Seattle, hundreds of rock fans attacked the mobile dance floor while in Portland, Oregon, a disc jockey destroyed a stack of disco records with a chainsaw as thousands cheered. In New York, a rock DJ played Donna Summer's disco hit Hot Stuff and received protests from listeners. So this was big time, 1979. Now you combine that with the Chicago White Sox. So Since the 40s, Chicago White Sox owner Bill Veek had been noted for using promotions to attract fan interest. He said, even with a losing team, if you have activities, the fans will come. You can draw more people with a losing team plus bread and circuses than a losing team and a long, long silence. His son, Mike, was the promotions director for the White Sox in 1979. He wrote a letter to a fan before the season that team management intended to make sure whether the White Sox won or lost that season that the fans would have fun. So we know Mike Veek uh, later became came into St. Paul as the Saints owner in the mid-90s. So this all comes back around to the Twin Cities again. So this was the White Sox 
in the in the 70s, uh, 1979. Mike was running. Now, running the show. Early in 1979, a game between the White Sox and the visiting Tigers scheduled for Wednesday, May 2nd, was rained out. Officials rescheduled it as part of a twinite doubleheader on Thursday, July 12th. Already scheduled for that evening was a promotion aimed at teenagers who could purchase tickets at half the regular price. So that promotion for teenagers to come to that night game was already on the books. Then a game got rained out in May. They pushed it to be played earlier that day as part of a twi-night doubleheader, an afternoon game followed by a couple hours uh, of activities in the night game. Now, part of the other history of this is two years earlier in 1977, the White Sox hosted a disco night at Comiskey Park. Because disco was the rage. Now it's two years later. Things weren't working. And this DJ with the backlash, Steve Dahl, suggested blowing up a crate of disco records while live on the air and doing this at a shopping mall parking lot. They said, well, how about we take your idea of blowing up a crate of disco records do it in between games at the White Sox and call it Disco Demolition Night, and then we can clean things up and um, bring in fans for the late game. Now, anyone that brought a disco record, an LP, a disco LP to the park that night would come in for half price. So the teenagers would come in for half price if they brought a disco record. They would collect the disco records, place them all in a crate, and in between games, blow it up. Now, in the weeks before the event, Dahl, uh, the D- the DJ Dahl, invited his listeners to bring records that they wanted to see destroyed to Comiskey Park. He also feared that the promotion would fail to draw people to the ballpark and that he would be humiliated. So he was hoping this thing would work. And so would Mr. Veek, uh, the promotions director, Mike Veek, for the White Sox. Thought, we've we've pulled off some stunts before, but we've got to do something big. Now, the previous night's attendance was only 15,000 fans at Comiskey Park. Comiskey Park holds 44,500 fans. The White Sox were not having a good year that year. So they thought this would be a good way to promote having a doubleheader, the, uh, doing this promotion with the radio station. They were hoping for a crowd of 20, maybe even 25,000. Mike Veek from the White Sox running the promotion hired enough security that night for 35,000 fans, thinking just to be safe, let's hire extra security for all these teenagers. So the night goes on. In between the games, Dahl sets off the explosives. This is the DJ. He destroyed the records, which ended up tearing a huge hole in the outfield grass. Now, most of the security personnel were still watching the gates, the turnstiles, per Mike Veek's orders, because there were so many fans coming in. He assigned all the security to move off the field and over to the turnstiles. 
because there were so many people they couldn't keep up with the people coming in. So the security was no longer on the field watching the field. Soon, the first of five to 7,000 attendees of the event rushed onto the field. The batting cage was destroyed. The bases were pulled up and stolen. And Mike uh, Bilveek, the owner of the team, not Mike, stood with a microphone near home plate, begging the people to return to the stands while the bonfire raged in center field. So this got out of hand real fast. By 9.08 p.m., the Chicago police arrived in riot gear to the applause of the baseball fans remaining in the stands. Now, those on the field hastily dispersed upon seeing the police and 39 people were arrested for disorderly conduct. Veek wanted the teams to play the second game once order was restored. However, the field was so badly torn up that the umpiring crew, the crew chief, Dave Phillips, felt that the field was still not playable even after the White Sox groundkeeper, groundskeepers spent an hour clearing the debris. He said, we can't play on this, on this field. Uh, we can't up. This is not a safe field. Now, the Tigers' manager at the time was Sparky Anderson. He refused to allow his players to even take the field in any event due to safety concerns. Now, the crew chief, Dave Phillips, called the American League president, Lee McPhail, who postponed the second game and moved it to Sunday after hearing a report of the conditions. Sparky Anderson, however, demanded that the game be forfeited to the Tigers because he argued that under baseball's rules, a game can only be postponed due to an act of God and that, as, as the home team, the White Sox are responsible for the field conditions. An act of God did not happen. The field wasn't safe to play. Therefore, he argued the game should be forfeited. Not rescheduled, but forfeited. So the next day, McPhail forfeited the second game to the Tigers in a final score of 9-0. In a ruling that largely upheld Anderson's arguments, McPhail stated that the White Sox had failed to provide an acceptable playing condition. So they had to call it a forfeit. Now, the unplayed second game remains the last American League game ever to be forfeited. The last National League game to be forfeited was in August 1995 when a baseball giveaway promotion at Dodger Stadium went awry, forcing the L.A. Dodgers to concede a game to the St. Louis Cardinals. But according to baseball analyst Jeremiah Graves, to this day, Disco Demolition Night stands in infamy as one of the most ill-advised promotions of all time, but arguably one of the most successful, as 30 years later, we're still talking about it. Boy, they sold out. They had 50,000 fans. Some expected 55,000 were on hand. They couldn't all get in because so many people showed up to this event. That took place July 12th, 1979. We're covering it today as part of the anniversary of that event.
Hey everybody, Andy here, Sports and Songs, Songs Edition. Uh, my bit today, uh, anniversary of Live Aid. Live Aid was first done, or the original Live Aid was July 13th, 1985. Um, it was held in Wembley Stadium in London, and, and also at uh, John F. Kennedy Stadium in Philadelphia. Not to be confused with Veterans Stadium, Philadelphia where the baseball team played, but John F. Kennedy Stadium, um, or the football stadium there. Or um, the vet where the Eagles played. This was a football stadium where, where the Army Navy game was at, and uh, some other events like that. But that, just to get you set with the stadiums, it was at noon in London when it started that day. It was seven a.m. in Philadelphia, and that's how it started. It, it all came from the whole live aid, the whole "Do they know it's Christmas" song the year before. Bob Geldof, his whole thing. He thought if we got these two concerts to for relief in Africa and globally. They were going to do concerts in London and Philadelphia is where it ended up being from. Uh, the artists they got were just a who's who of music at the time and from the past and some of the future. Some up-and-coming artists played there too. Um, and they kind of go back and forth between cities. There's also some other cities like uh, – um, the Soviet Union autograph performed in the Soviet Union. They kind of like videoed that in to those watching on TV and on the screens there. Uh, Japan had Loudness and a band called Of Course and some other bands from Japan. Those were brought in. Yugoslavia, um, Australia, Austria, West Germany, the Netherlands where B.B. King performed. Uh, and a U.S. studio show from Cool and the Gang. Um, that's some other people who appeared via satellite, if you will. The... Uh, Original shows, like I said, London started. It was noon there. And here's some of the performers in, that played in London. And I'm just going to go through, a, a, not all of them, of course, just some of the who's who's names. Uh, the Boomtown Rats, that's Bob Geldof, they played. Any artists played over between one song and five songs. They all varied up. The Boomtown Rats played. Adam Amp played. Spandell Ballet. Elvis Costello. Sade. Uh, these these three played as a group. It was Sting, Phil Collins, and Bradford Marsalis, who was later on to be on um, Jay Leno's band on his show. Um, Howard Jones was there. Uh, Paul Young played U2, Dire Straits. Queen. If you ever get a chance to watch the Queen performance from Live Aid, that was the best performance of all. Uh, David Bowie, The Who, Elton John. Then Freddie Mercury and Brian May came out for another song. Uh, Paul McCartney did some songs. And, of course, they did the whole big ta-da at the end. The whole band aid group uh, in Philadelphia, John F. Kennedy or John F. Kennedy Stadium. Um, the Hooters played the Four Tops, Billy Ocean, Black Sabbath, Run DMC, Rick Springfield, Ario Speedwagon, uh, Judas Priest, Brian Adams, The Beach Boys, George Thogood with Bo Diddley, uh, Simple Mind, Pretender, Santana, Madonna was there, Tom Petty, and The Heartbreakers, Kenny Loggins, The Cars. Power Station played, the Thompson Twins, um, Eric Clapton, Phil Collins. Yeah, the same Phil Collins. He played London, then flew to Philadelphia and played. So he did both locations. Led Zeppelin, Duran Duran. Um, you could say some guys played twice because Power Station played and Andy Taylor and John Taylor and Duran Duran and that. So they kind of played twice that day. Patti LaBelle, Hollow Oats. Uh, Mick Jagger played, then Bob Dylan with Keith Richards, Ronnie Wood, and then, of course, their big USA for Africa 
montage at the end there. They had all that going. Um, some other names that weren't there, some notable names or absences, as they say, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, he did participate in the USA for Africa. Do they know it's Christmas thing? Uh, his concert was to be July. The original concert was to be July 6th, and they rescheduled that because Springsteen couldn't make it, so they made it the 13th. And it was moved to that, and he still didn't show up. Um, he turned it down. Michael Jackson, through his press agent, said Michael couldn't make it because he was busy working on a project at the time. Uh, Prince did not appear, but he did send in a uh, pre-taped video, the acoustic version of For the Tears in Your Eyes. So uh, Prince did send in a video. Um, Annie Lennox of the Arrhythmics, which we talked about here on the show a couple weeks ago, uh, she wanted to be there and couldn't because she was having um, serious throat infection at the time. Didn't want to risk that or harm that at all. And the one that kind of makes me scratch my head a lot in this is Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis in the news. Um, Huey was in the Do They Know It's Christmas stuff. Um, the They decided on June 28th to pull out over concerns that the money raised in the relief effort thus far had not been reaching those it was intended to help. Crosby Stills and Nash performed in this. Everybody was liberal and gun-shy as a group I could think of, and they still performed. So for Huey Lewis up and think he's the guy who's going to whatever. Um, obviously, it didn't hurt a lot of these bands by pulling out. Huey Lewis still had a little bit of success after that. Um, like the Hooters were just up and coming. They kind of died off after that. Some other bands like Queen almost kind of gave them a, another boost of energy through the crowd or through their popularity. Uh, there's the Crosby's Little Nash had a nice little run again afterwards from that. Sabbath playing and Judas Priest, the only two metal bands or hard rock bands there. Uh, I say there, Loudness did perform by videotape, so there was three metal bands, but two were actually there, and they were both in Philadelphia, so that was kind of cool. Um, it's just one of those things, if you get to go back and watch it again, because we will never see something like this again. Uh, just the way the mentality is with artists and people, they'll just cut the check or they'll send in a video or something. You're not going to see a USA for Africa or a Band-Aid or a Hearing Aid, which is what the heavy metal ones did. Um, Northern Lights with the Canada group, or artists, their group. Um, you're not going to see that anymore, I don't think. You won't see a all-star collaboration. You may see four guys get together maybe, but you're not going to see a collaboration like this again. You're not going to see a concert series like this. Two major cities in the globe all-day concerts, 20 bands at least each going, celebrities showing up for announcing. It, it, it just isn't going to happen, and that's just so sad. Oh, yeah, they have Farm Aid, and you have music festivals here and there. That's great. You got a music festival going on, Rockfest, four days, 20-some bands. That's over four days. Not 20 bands, one day, one stadium. And Headlining bands, too. These, you know, egos today, they couldn't do it. Um, so that's the other sad part, how we'll never see it. They, they shoved egos aside. They shoved all this and that aside, and they went. Um, like I said, Rick Springfield's there. He did one song. Queen was there. They did, like, five or six. Oh, was that part of their agreement, what they said they could do for their timing? Well, these guys, like I said, you know, Springsteen was on tour. Other bands were on tour. They made kind of stops for this. So maybe they only had time for a song because, hey, 
it's our off day in between tours. We can pop in real quick. No problem. They still showed up. You got to respect that. You got to like that. Um, again, July 13th was the anniversary of that. If you can go back and watch any of those clips from any of those bands from that day, especially the Queen one, I highly recommend that. They, it, it's just incredible. You could tell the bands were having fun. It wasn't a, not that they don't have fun in the regular concerts, but you're meeting all your other buddies back there. It was a little who could, who could get the bigger roar out of the crowd than the other guy from your band, from other bands. I'm sure there's some ribbon going back and forth. The jamming at the end, other guys coming out with you. It, it, it just had to be, to be a fly on the wall in the back room would have been the best. But that's my report today for the songs edition of Sports and Songs today for this Thursday. Um, please, like I said, check that out. Check us out also on social media. There is, also you're listening to this on the audio one. There is no video for this, but do check out our YouTube channel. Search Sports and Songs. Please give it a subscribe and a like. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and coming soon, Twitch. Thanks a lot. We'll get with you guys this um, weekend with our sports show. Mm-hmm.